RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 345, Homefront in Paradise Lost. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we pick apart an episode of Star Trek, every episode of Star Trek, examining it for morals, meanings, messages, and seeing if the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, we discuss the second two-part episode of Season 4, Homefront and Paradise Lost, where the Dominion has finally hit the Federation where it really hurts, right in the loyalties. But before we start any mandatory blood tests, let's first let you all know where you can contact us in case you suspect any changeling activity in your area. If you would like to contact us, please isolate your subspace carrier waves for the following contact frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, what I do know for certain is that John has risked our mandatory phaser sweeps at the maximum 3.5 setting to bring you this week's trivia. I have, Norman, and, uh, and I bruise easily. So those were those were a little tough on me. This week, trivia for our two-parter Homefront and Paradise Lost. Well, Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf get the majority of the credit here for pulling together the two-parter. The only addition was a story credit for Ronald D. Moore on Paradise Lost. All right, so remember, way, way back at the end of season three of DS9. In the episode, The Adversary, or Adversary, a changeling shows up on DS9 in the form of Federation Ambassador Krasinski. He commands Cisco et al. to go for a ride on the Defiant, and we get to play a game of Spot the Founder. Now, that episode was a somewhat last-minute replacement, as we discussed on Mission Log, for what would have been a more epic cliffhanger two-parter to keep us waiting between seasons three and four. The studio said, nah, just make it one. And so we got a standalone episode. Now, mid-season four, we revisit the original idea of founders making their way to Earth and what happens then. Now, the other interesting factor here was that the production had already blown a lot of money so far with large-scale episodes like The Way of the Warrior, So this story didn't exactly get the treatment that was intended had it been a season ender and cliffhanger. Homefront was directed by David Livingston, a person who hardly needs an introduction. Uh, He was a producer starting with TNG's first season, then directed two episodes there before jumping over to DS9. We have six more of his to talk about on DS9 before he jumps over to Voyager for an impressively long run there. 
Paradise Lost was directed by Reza Badi. We first met Reza in season three of DS9 when he directed Civil Defense. You may recall that uh, he was even then a veteran TV director, having helmed many episodes of Mission Impossible, just to name one very important show that he directed. This is his fifth and final directing job for Star Trek. All of his episodes were on DS9. Norman, every now and then I like to point out ship names because those are often a lot of fun. We, of course, have a reference here to the Okinawa, uh, of course, named for the Japanese island chain between Japan and Taiwan. And we have the Lakota, named after the Sioux Native American tribe. Incidentally, that Excelsior-class ship and the hero model that represents it was introduced in Star Trek III and was then reused as the Enterprise B in Generations. The name was changed again to Lakota for this episode, and sadly, this is the very last on-screen use of that model. Uh, if you were lucky enough to have been at that big auction, I think you remember Profiles in History did the big, big Star Trek auction. And yeah, whoever bought that model for over a hundred grand, uh, they they have that model, but it doesn't say Excelsior Enterprise B. It says Lakota on it. Now, let's talk about guest stars. Um, really looks like they went out with some strong guest star roles on these two episodes. Uh, we get to welcome back Susan Gibney, who you no doubt remember as Dr. Leah Brahms from TNG. She did two episodes there. Here she is playing Captain Benteen. Incidentally, uh, there was a real-life Benteen who served George Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn. They were summarily defeated, if you don't know your history. They were beat by the Lakota Sioux. Aha, clever. Now, Juresh Inyo is the president of the Federation, here played by Herschel Sparber. He's had a number of guest roles, even some features like the Birdcage, and a number of voice acting gigs, too. One of the most distinctive things about him is that he is six foot nine. <laughs> and in fact, he assumed that he was going in to read for a Klingon or some other formidable alien race. Uh, but then they thought to play against type and cast him as Inyo, a president concerned about peace above all. Robert Foxworth is front and center here as Admiral Layton. This is the first time we've seen him on Star Trek, but Robert very notably was the star of another Gene Roddenberry production, The Quester Tapes, back in 1974. We'll catch him again in Star Trek when he comes back for a three-episode run in Season 4 of Enterprise. Robert's been working as an actor since the late 1960s and has a vast resume, both in front of the camera and as a voice actor. Genre credits include Babylon 5, and he is the voice of Ratchet in the Transformers movies. He was the longtime companion and eventual husband of Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched, and after her passing, he married producer Stacey Thomas. Finally, what a joy to welcome back Brock Peters to Star Trek. Yes, this is the first time we have seen him as Joseph Sisko, but we can't forget that he was Admiral Cartwright in Star Trek IV, the one with the whales, then in Star Trek VI, the one with the purple blood. He lent his distinctive voice to Trek games and many other projects and certainly had a long and illustrious career in front of the camera. He's in one of my favorite movies of all time. Stop what you're doing. Go watch To Kill a Mockingbird from 1962. We'll be here when you get back. And if I may, John, to 
just to make a, a, a small trivia point about Robert sure. Foxworth. He played General Haig on Babylon 5, and his character on Babylon 5, believe it or not, was a character that wanted to stop a coup from happening. Everything went very well the last time Deep Space Nine visited Earth. It seems totally reasonable to go back again so soon. Prologue. Dax and Sisko are observing a fairly typical opening and closing of the wormhole. Troubled, however, by Dax's account as the wormhole has done so seven times in two hours for no apparent reason that can be detected. Their speculations are curtailed as Worf requests Sisko's presence in ops to receive a Priority One Starfleet communication. Meanwhile, Odo is grilling Quark on Dax's whereabouts because he is infuriated with her perverse delight of moving around his furniture and casting his world into chaos, three to four centimeters at a time. Quark, however, is spared further tongue lashings as Odo, too, is summoned to ops. In ops, Worf plays the command staff a high-level security recording of a recent Federation and Romulan diplomatic conference. It appears that a bomb explosion has killed 27 diplomatic attendees, an act of violence and terrorism not seen on Earth for over 100 years. Worf directs everyone's attention to a piece of shimmering pottery before the explosion. Odo is certain it is a changeling, feeding into Sisko's fears that have now become reality. The changelings have reached Earth. Act 1. Under Odo's watchful eye, Dax returns his world to order before he and Captain Sisko depart for Starfleet Command for a security briefing on the changeling threat. Benjamin is also finalizing his travel plans with his father Joseph, informing him that this trip will be far more business than pleasure. After another holosuite mission of the Battle of Britain, O'Brien and Bashir toast their fallen comrade Clive, but aren't quite up for another adventure. Quark doesn't understand why they are so depressed over a holosuite character, and O'Brien tells Quark that they are just venting their sense of feeling powerless to help save Earth after the bombing. As Odo walks past Quark's, the chief asks him to look into his parents on Dublin, and Bashir admits that he has no one for Odo to visit, but wishes he could go with Odo to Earth all the same. Odo agrees and would welcome the camaraderie, if only for perhaps safety in numbers. O'Brien reminds Odo that he can't be held responsible for what happened, but Odo, ever the pragmatist, knows that this is just honest optimism on the chief's part. In ops, Kira seems a bit melancholy over the now-normal functioning of the wormhole, hoping the abnormalities were signs from the prophets. Worf interjects, touting the merits of the Klingon belief system having no gods, since the worthless ones they had were executed over 1,000 years ago. Oh, that Worf. Upon their arrival at Starfleet headquarters, Sisko and Odo are met by Admiral Layton and his adjutant, Commander Benteen. Layton states that Sisko was his exo on the Okinawa and the best with whom he's ever served, which later helped fast-track Sisko's command to Deep Space Nine. Layton is in awe of Odo, being the first changeling he's ever met. Sisko is curious as to why he was recalled all the way to Earth. Admiral Layton admits that he needs Sisko's first-hand expertise on how to fight the Dominion, and thusly promote Sisko to acting head of Starfleet Security on Earth. Act 2. In New Orleans, Joseph Sisko is doing what he does best, taking care of his customers and pushing his signature bread pudding souffle, to which he is surprised by the booming voice of his son saying, You should listen to him. The man knows his bread pudding. 
Joseph hugs both Benjamin and Jake and sits them down for a bit of gumbo. Disappointed that Odo didn't visit as well, Joseph understands the reasoning, but admits he's suspicious about someone who doesn't eat and dismisses any conversation regarding his health. Jake is pleasantly surprised by seeing Nog, now a fully-fledged cadet, who turns out is a regular at Cisco's because they are the only place he can get live tube grubs. After dinner, Nog confides in Jake that Starfleet Academy isn't what he expected, especially when trying to make friends with the upperclassmen there, specifically those in an elite training corps known as Red Squad. Captain Sisko and Admiral Layton arrive in Paris to meet with Federation President Jaris Inyo, and Sisko recommends immediate and sweeping upgrades to all Federation security measures. Jaris Inyo believes that these are simply extremist and paranoid responses to the current changeling threat, until Odo reveals himself from hiding in plain sight as Sisko's silver attaché case. Odo states that without proper screening and security measures, any changeling could have slipped past security to either kill or perhaps worse, replace the president with an imposter. Reluctantly, the president agrees to Cisco's security upgrades and fears his presidential legacy will only be remembered for the administration that destroyed paradise. Whereas Benjamin believes that taking action against the Dominion will in fact save paradise. Act 3. Much to Odo's chagrin as the test subject, Captain Sisko and Commander Benteen continue fine-tuning their phaser-sweeping modules for their immediate installation across Starfleet headquarters and Earth orbital facilities. Cadet Nog arrives to discuss with Captain Sisko some of the challenges he is struggling with at Starfleet Academy. Nog insisted that life at the Academy would be easier if Sisko, as a high-ranking officer, would recommend him for admittance into an elite cadet corps called Red Squad. Sisko is just as curious, if not puzzled, about hearing this Red Squad something that didn't exist when he was at the Academy. In the midst of all that is happening at Starfleet, Benjamin finds a moment to visit with his father, with conversations ranging from not seeing each other enough to Benjamin working too hard, and even more concern over Joseph's health, both father and son agree to set aside their grievances and enjoy a leisurely stroll together as father and son enjoying the limited time they have together. At Starfleet headquarters, Admiral Layton and Commander Benteen Watch Odo descend and transform from a seagull to his humanoid form. Odo offers his hand in friendship to Admiral Layton, thanking him for the trust that he has been shown in working with Starfleet. But Layton brushes past him, only to be grabbed on the wrist by Odo, causing them to link in only that visible and physical way changelings do, as it wrenches free from Odo's grasp, only to transform into a seagull and flee the scene. Debriefing the real Admiral Layton, Captain Sisko, and Commander Benteen, Odo states that he could feel a level of hostility in the changeling that he encountered. Benteen proclaims that no matter how hard the efforts, they aren't simply enough. Leighton believes that this non-human president isn't acting as aggressively as necessary to go to war with the changelings for fear of reprisal. Their conversation is suddenly interrupted by Jake telling his dad that Grandpa was arrested. Act 4. Unbeknownst to Joseph... His son Benjamin signed and enacted a policy that forcibly screens all Starfleet personnel and their families without question or exception. Both Benjamin and Jake subject themselves to the test in front of Joseph to comply with Starfleet law and to show solidarity. But Joseph refuses to be tested because he believes being forced to prove your identity or innocence through blood screenings is wrong and is no way to live. In the heat of their argument, as he's preparing food for this evening's menu, Joseph cuts himself. After washing his cut in the sink, he sees Benjamin staring at the smear of blood on the knife. 
Enraged with disbelief, Joseph tries to convince his son that paranoia and fear are taking over and that there's no test that a smart person, especially a changeling, can't find a way around. Before he could finish his last thought, Joseph clutches his chest and collapses from a mild stroke. Later, Sisko confides in Odo that he actually did doubt his father's word, and Odo states that it's exactly why the changelings are here, to undermine trust, period. Down, but never out, Joseph Sisko is back at work, while Jake slows him down enough to both share their concerns about Benjamin. Suddenly, the power goes out, and not just at the restaurant. Back at Starfleet, Sisko, Admiral Layton, and Odo come to the terrifying realization that the Chainlings have sabotaged Earth power relay system, and if the Dominion attacks now, the world is completely defenseless. Act 5. Beaming into the president's office via the USS Lakota's unaffected transporters, Sisko, with Odo and Admiral Layton, advises the president to declare a state of emergency, a declaration that has only been enacted one other time in the past 100 years during the Borg invasion. The president is made aware that the Bajoran wormhole has been acting suspiciously and that there is the possibility that the Dominion salvaged Romulan and Cardassian cloaking technology, which would render their fleet undetectable. Admiral Layton states that he's been preparing for this moment and has stockpiled enough weapons and resources to defend Earth from invasion. However, the president is hesitant to declare martial law and admits that he never sought the Federation presidency. Sisko, Odo, and Layton convince him that the world needs strong and decisive leadership or fear will take hold and lead to worldwide panic and despair. Knowing this, the president grants Sisko emergency powers to do what must be done. In New Orleans... Jake and Grandpa Joe peer through the restaurant window watching waves of armed troops being beamed into the streets. Act 6. In the aftermath of the worldwide blackout and the declaration of martial law on Earth, Captain Sisko, who is still acting head of Starfleet security, is deeply concerned with a great many unanswered questions and loose threads regarding the sabotage of Earth's power relays, especially how the Changeling were able to bypass so many levels of Starfleet protocols. Furthering his concerns are conversations with Odo regarding irregular transporter logs regarding a questionable entry of Red Squad, who, according to Nog, are granted special privileges and assignments. However, when Sisko discusses this errant transporter log with the Commandant of Starfleet Academy, Sisko is ordered to erase those logs to protect the cadets only raising even more red flags with Sisko and Odo than ever before. Act 7. In New Orleans, Benjamin is checking up on his father after his stroke, and Joseph can't help but remark on Benjamin's conflicted state of mind. During their discussion, Cadet Nog reports in as ordered, and Sisko, after mentioning the name Red Squad, knows that Cadet Nog is a wealth of information about them, especially how they idolize Sisko as a hero in the war against the Dominion. Unable to keep any secrets from Ferengi, Nog knew all of the identities of Red Squad, information that a cadet could never keep from a superior officer like Captain Sisko. Shortly after, Sisko meets with third-year cadet Riley Shepard. Capitalizing on his heroic reputation as touted by Red Squad, Sisko chastises Cadet Shepard into defending that Red Squad executed their off-book mission perfectly, the simultaneous deactivation of the planetary power relays. Later at the restaurant, Sisko debriefs Odo on his investigation. Odo is not completely ruling out Dominion interference. However, Sisko isn't truly convinced it is the Dominion entirely, or else why did they not attack Earth when the defenses were down? 
Cisco concludes that Starfleet officers, not changelings, sabotaged Earth's power grid, causing planet-wide panic to maneuver the president into giving Leighton the ability to enforce martial law. And Odo is curious to know, what will Cisco do about it? Act 8. Returning to Paris, Cisco and Odo plead their case to the president, Jarashinyo. In great detail, Odo recounts how the Federation has responded ever since his first report of changeling infiltration. At the time, Admiral Leighton proposed certain extreme security measures, which were summarily rejected by the president. Leighton redoubled his efforts until the president capitulated enough to placate Leighton. However, after the bombing at Antwerp, Leighton leveraged this tragedy, and with Cisco's support as acting head of Starfleet security, the president finally granted them emergency powers to declare martial law across Earth. Outraged at even the possibility of treason, the president cannot even comprehend their accusations. But Cisco doubles down and even offers up his own resignation if Leighton refuses to follow a presidential order to withdraw the troops from the streets. Before taking any action, the president demands concrete proof that links Admiral Leighton to the planetary blackout, or Leighton's supporters will come to his defense and riot in his name. Later at Cisco's, Nog regretfully reports that he can't find a single member of Red Squad, as Admiral Leighton attests that he too has unfinished business with Captain Cisco. Benjamin and Leighton come to an understanding. They have a fundamental difference concerning defending Earth in the Federation. Leighton believes that what he has done and has set into motion is the right course of action, and that Cisco is duty bound to follow the chain of command. Refusing to do so, Cisco is relieved of his position and is ordered to go back to Deep Space Nine. Contemplating what to do next, Cisco is startled at the sight and sound of Chief O'Brien. Or is it? Sussing out that this O'Brien is a changeling, it voluntarily admits to being one of four total changelings on Earth, remarking on what just four of them were able to do to an entire planet. Before leaving, the changeling O'Brien declares that one certainty that Cisco knows to be true. In the end, it will be fear that will destroy the solids and eventually Earth itself. Act 9. Back at the restaurant, Benjamin and Joseph are engaged in a much-needed father and son discussion. Joseph dredges up an old memory about one of Benjamin's old girlfriends, Nephi Beaumont, reminding him when his father said, There comes a time in every man's life when he must stop thinking and start doing. In other words, it's time for Benjamin to make a decision and take action. Cisco contacts Major Kira on a secure Bajoran frequency for a station and wormhole status update and to ask a favor. Acting as if he's cleaning out his personal effects, Cisco, with Odo's help, hacks into Starfleet records and finds that Leighton has placed officers who served with him on the Okinawa in key positions on Earth or in command of ships in Earth's sector. Cisco surmises that many of the most recent transfers may be somehow related to a coup against President Jarashinyo. Before leaving, he has a brief discussion with Commander, now Captain Ventina the Lakota, letting her clearly know that he would be staying on Earth a little longer as he may enjoy this new and more secure Earth. Later in the president's office, Cisco is confronted by Admiral Leighton and is subjected to a blood screening from which a vial placed in front of the president shimmered with a changeling's genetic material. Resigning to the setup, Cisco tosses his pad full of incriminating evidence and tumbling onto the president's desk. Act 10. As Cisco patiently waits in his holding cell, Admiral Leighton laments that an officer of Benjamin's quality and loyalty has come to this predicament, but not permanently. Leighton illuminates Sisko on his ultimate plan to have Starfleet seize control of Earth and to permanently eliminate the changeling threat no matter how long 
and no matter the cost, because the Federation deserves far stronger leadership. Later, doing a routine blood screening of security personnel, a disguised Odo breaks Cisco out of his cell and informs him that Major Kira has sent the Defiant to Earth with a very important prisoner, Lieutenant Ariaga, a Starfleet officer connected to the conspiracy against the President. Ariaga is willing to testify that under orders, he used a special device to simulate that a cloaked Dominion invasion fleet was coming through the wormhole undetected, hence the strange wormhole activity taking place several days ago. Such an imminent threat, coupled with the sabotaged power relays on Earth, would give Leighton enough leverage to enact martial law and to put Starfleet's authority above the President's. When Sisko confronts Admiral Leighton at Phaser Point and threatens him with treason, the Admiral simply brushes Sisko's allegations aside because he has already sent the Lakota under the command of now Captain Benteen, who has been informed by Leighton that the Defiant, now crewed by changelings, is on their way to Earth and must be stopped. As the Defiant and the Lakota engage in battle, Sisko and Leighton wage their own war, a war of principles, of philosophies, of honor, and of loyalty. As both battles reach their own respective points of no return, Captain Benteen contacts Leighton, who in turn orders her to prevent the Defiant from reaching Earth by any means necessary. However, Sisko makes a desperate plea to Benteen to spare the Defiant and to come to her senses about her orders. It seemed that Sisko's words found their mark, and the Defiant and the Lakota stand down and cease hostilities, yet suffered many casualties. Starfleet casualties. Sisko makes one final appeal to Leighton to stand down, as he has lost on every front and is fighting the wrong war. Knowing that there are no options left, Leighton removes his admiral pins and leaves to surrender himself. As Earth slowly begins to return to normal, Oda reminds everyone that his people are still on Earth. And as true and as terrifying as that may be, both Joseph and Benjamin Sisko declare that humans will continue to live their lives and will never surrender to what the Dominion believes will be the key to defeating humanity, paranoia and fear. The End Oh, man, epic. So much plot. Wow. So many characters. <laughs> but, but good job. See, a two-parter is a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, to say the but, least. <laughs> uh, yeah, but thank you for taking that on. And hey, DS9, full of these long story arcs. So there we mm-hmm. go. But well done, sir. Thank you. Well done. You know, uh, it, it is, and we'll we'll get into, obviously, the production and how we feel about it later in the show, but interesting just to sort of, I don't know, I, I look at the script here and I think, okay, it's a two-parter. There are things that are necessary to have in one part versus the other. And then other places where you feel like there's maybe an unnecessary use of the time. And you've got a situation where you have contractual guarantees to the actors. So they have to be in there, even if they appear nowhere else in the story. So like, you got to have Quark in there at the top. You got to have Dax in there at the top. You got to have Bashir, even though we do get that nice little, I love the O'Brien fake out with the changeling on earth, but in the attempt to squeeze everybody in, there's something that really bothers me. And that's the Dax thing with moving Odo's furniture that's just weird mm-hmm. to me. Like, I, I understand. Like, there's so much that I love about Dax. There's so much I love about 
exploring her character and the many nuances that come with being a trill. I think she's fascinating. And yeah, there's maybe that little bit of uh, uh, Curzon in her still, the prankster, having a bit of fun, messing with Odo. But it just seems of all things, this is super childish. (laughs) Among both of them, it just is a huge waste of time in the episode. I I don't know why that one stuck out to me so much. Because I think at this stage, it just feels contrary to where she is now as her character based on so many episodes, like Rejoined and uh, the Sword of Kalos. It just seems that this is a part of her character that just kind of regressed. Yeah, she's literally the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very weird. That that one bothered me. Like of all the filler, I actually really enjoyed the bit with uh Bashir and O'Brien doing the the flyboy thing uh and doing their their cockney slang. Like I loved that. I thought that was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, that's the link character to the to Yeah. to what they do. Totally. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, the big thing that kind of bugged me though early mm-hmm. on I'm, I'm sure that you have addressed this, that you and Ken addressed this before with, mm-hmm. with some of the other two-parters. But why did they name this two-parter two different episode titles? Yeah, that is a great question. And I, I haven't – you know, my go-to is uh, Terry Gerardman's Star Trek Deep Space Nine companion as sort of the source of all knowledge. And I couldn't find a really satisfactory – answer for that. Mm -hmm. And I I think the only thing you can pin it to is that early on when they had the idea, okay, Homefront is a story we're working on where we need to get back home. Sure. And they hadn't really determined how that was going to wrap up. Uh, There were some different ideas floated around. Why then you had to end up with a different episode title, Paradise Lost, not entirely sure, other than that, well, Star Trek has referenced Milton before, so why not reference Milton again? Yeah, not not really sure. But hey, let's move on to more fun topics, like food. Mm. Food is a thing that I like to talk about in Star Trek. And honestly, I've been anticipating this two-parter for a long time because we finally get to the Cisco's restaurant in New Orleans. And mm-hmm. uh, just for starters, I am very pro-bread pudding. I know people who are not. Those people are wrong. I am also <laughs> I, I am pro uh, trout. I am pro crawfish. I am pro gumbo. All these things, being a a son of the South that I am, uh, in New Orleans was sort of like uh, the the nearby place that that is you know, sort of your your weekend getaway. Love 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 the food in New Orleans. However, all of this focus on the Cisco's restaurant does still bring up a question about economics on Earth. And mm-hmm. and we, we sort of play around that every now and then. We've talked about it before on Mission Log and Star Trek fans talk about this online, you know. But it, it sort of goes back to this thing about what people have or don't have and why they work. It, it just opens up a lot of question about that. Um, and I don't think, look, we're not going to solve that here in this section of this particular podcast. But this is just one of those glaring examples where the whole idea of the post-scarcity society that is in Star Trek, at least for uh, members of the Federation and specifically people on Earth, all of this is unanswered, and it's sort of hard to wrap your head around. This is a piece of property in New Orleans that is 
presumably larger than some properties and smaller than some other properties. And it's not where Ben, I'm sorry, where Joseph Sisko lives. It is the place of his business and a business in which he has employees and a business in which he has to have supplies come in. And then people come eat what he creates that I'm just saying there's a lot of questions about how this works or why it works. I get the love of food. I get the love of cooking. Believe me, I get that in a profound and deep personal way. But running a restaurant is a whole other thing. And he's not using replicated food. He's using real fresh produce and real fresh yeah. ingredients. And, yeah, which has yeah. a value. You know, here's an interesting thing. I've always, I've always believed that maybe people work to make just enough to be able to afford, I don't know, something. I don't know. I don't know how this works. It's just, yeah. it, it's befuddling. It is. It is. It is it's befuddling because I know that in first contact, Picard says that the acquisition of wealth isn't the driving force mm-hmm. of our society, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't wealth. It's just saying the acquisition of wealth isn't the driving right. force. So maybe there is still... Um, a, a, a commerce model in play, but it's not the end all be all of one's existence. Right, right. And it, it's just, you know, it, it's sort of, I, I realize that it's fantasy, it's fiction, um, but there are certain ideas you kind of have to wrap your, your head around because clearly we have modern day analogs for, for how we would see this. You know, if I go to a just a a cheap burger place, that food has a particular value versus going to a Cajun restaurant with a bunch of fresh food that is being acquired from who knows what local sources. And that has a different and presumably higher value. And what do you do when somebody like me comes in and I look at that menu of uh, trout and gumbo and uh, crawfish etouffee and bread pudding and say, yes, I will have it all, please. Yeah, I'll yes. have all the left side of the menu and uh, <laughs> right. normal have the right Precisely. side. Precisely. Yeah. So these are just, you know, good questions. It, it, it has to work somehow in this fantasy that is Star Trek, but it, it's kind of tough to figure out exactly how that is. I'm not sure if, if this has ever been covered, you know, in, it just in general in talking, but I mean, the Federation is obviously like the model of the post-scarcity mm-hmm. uh, future. So why aren't everyone, you know, why isn't everyone just going to a, like a, a replicator mat and just getting right. whatever they want? Right. And and, and they do play around right. with that every now and then like, oh, well, replicator food isn't as good, which I still question a little bit because you could I well, well how would people know? Well, how would people know? And I say if you've got Joe Sisko making his world-famous gumbo out of these fresh ingredients. Cool. I've got a super advanced computer that can scan it and recreate exactly that whenever I want it. Yeah, yeah. And I could go replicate a gold brick to pay him with if I feel like. So... Not going to be not no, going to be no, solved no. tonight. <laughs> uh, there was another thing though that has value on Earth, and I, I I love that being back on Earth puts you into transporter range of anywhere. So you can work during the day in San Francisco. Cool dinner in New Orleans. Yes, that is my dream come true. <laughs> it is I so love that. cool. It just doesn't matter. I love that it doesn't matter at all. Techn- well, technically, it's kind of the same yeah. timeline in a way, but we all we've always wondered mm-hmm. how that is done. And in Star Trek Picard, we saw the transporter kiosks where people can just vip, just kind of like walk through and go into yeah, their destinations. Right. 
right? You know, all of a sudden, like, you know, you know uh, Jean-Luc is in the bar, and yeah. all of a sudden now he's in San Francisco. And say so like, where do you want to go? Well, I want to go Boom. to Starfleet Academy. Well, there's Starfleet Academy. Oh, I know, love portal. that. Boom. That, that is, yeah. I, I would love to see that day. Oh, other cool mm-hmm. uh, technological things. It's very cool that you can get a blood sample through clothing. That's still just kind of mm-hmm. amazes me. See, another cool thing, I really like that Benjamin's middle name is Lafayette. It's just a, it's a great name. And why wouldn't he be named that? Yeah, <laughs> love, so it. love it. Love um, it. Oh, and, and the wit and wisdom of Joseph Sisko. Truth is, I'm too old for beautiful women. Joseph, don't you ever tell yourself that, okay? Never. I was just thinking that he could take all of that enthusiasm mm-hmm. and put it into his cooking. Yeah. Don't go there, dude. I, I know. I, you know. I, I know what. I know what you're all thinking out there. It's not that he's putting it into his cooking, but he's putting yeah. it into his cooking. He's putting his foot. Yeah. He's yeah. putting his exactly. foot into it. Exactly. As they say, he he stepped yes. into it. He stepped his foot into it. <laughs> um, hey, this was a, you know we've seen it before many, many, many times in Star Trek. But something that stood out to me is that you've got. Ben Cisco and Odo standing at one end of that office that he's got, and the other end of the office is a huge monitor where he's having, first of all, the little chat with the, the Bolian, and then he brings up a memo, and that Elcar's memo, everything is in all caps, uh, which I, I guess in 1996 mm-hmm. and when Elcar's, when the standards for Elcar's were being figured out in 1987, uh, we didn't realize that that was yelling. So inadvertently, the Akutas right. created a future in which everybody is yelling all the time in their written communications. Also, it's a bit of a challenge to read, but I get it that it does look good on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I love the font. I love the El- Elkar's font. And I guess like when you look at it, you're like, oh, this yes. is yeah, this yeah, era. Yeah. I, I tried to do Trek. that on a computer before mm-hmm. and, you know, really make like all the fonts and Elkar's and, and the look. And it, it's like it's fun for a minute. But then you have to work, <laughs> and it's just not its not good anymore. Oh, I mentioned the Bolian, and it was yeah. good to see him uh, not being a barber, although he mm-hmm. could have been a barber in in his you know early career and then worked his way up into Starfleet. We don't know. Like, oh, and there was a, a, a weird line to me. It was sort of peculiar that the president says that there hasn't been a state of emergency on Earth in 100 years except for the Borg incident. And I was like, yeah, that that was a state of emergency because clearly it was a state of emergency and that was far more recent than 100 years ago. I mean, to me, that was like saying, we haven't had a world war since 1918 except for the one that was in the 40s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> except for that one. Like, yeah. Except for that one, that's, sure. That's, oh, come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was um, a little clumsy for sure. I will say I'm glad for that sure. at the very yeah, end yeah. that there were some people waiting outside of uh, Joseph Restaurant to come in because I swear only about 30 people live on this version of Earth. And, and I get it. I get it. Look, ever since TOS and into TNG, they're constantly going to colonies and you can live on a Scottish theme park planet if you want. Colonies mm-hmm. everywhere. But there's like – it's like Earth is great. No wonder it's so great. There's about 30 people who live there. Especially in Deep Space Nine, like when they were mm-hmm. doing like the Bell Riots and, and things of that nature and kind yeah. of sh- trying to show neighborhoods. It's almost as if like – <laughs> oh, we, 
what are we, we got to show a neighborhood. What? Like, what do we? Yeah. Like, what do we do? Like, how do we clothe these people? What do they look like? You know, what's the what's the diversity of the population? Like, it, it's it's yeah. something that's uncomfortable. I think for for Star Trek to show because it's not necessarily kind of like in Star Trek's yeah. uh, wheelhouse to yeah, show. Yeah, truly. Maybe this is one of the people. unintended messages of Star Trek: is that to really be happy in the future, humans just need a lot of room. They, they just really, it's about population. You just need, look, if we're yeah. running out of room on Earth, just wait until you can go to a planet that's inhabited by about 10 other people who have all bought into your same Scottish theme park fantasy. And, and that's the way to truly be happy. You know what was interesting to me is when mm. Odo, when Odo broke Cisco out of he, jail. Like he did. did he and you want to know why? Punch? They One ran of out of money guards? to do a morph effect. Se- seriously. Seriously. So he did his like, hey, he, he okay. picked up a little trick from the Vulcans who he has not met or spent significant time around. I've always like, so I heard two things just to digress. I heard two things about the Vulcan nef- neck pinch. One is actually a nerve cluster pinch. Two, it's oh. the Vulcans actually emit some type of like frequency oh, wow. through their fingertips that would actually deaden that nerve cluster. But then again, we have seen Data do that effectively. Sure. I'm sure that he doesn't do that. Yeah. And now we have seen Odo do that effectively. And I'm sure he doesn't do that. So. <laughs> well, and didn't McCoy at one point say, oh, you have to teach me how to do that someday? <laughs> or it was so, a Kirk who said that. And one last thing that I, I, I found curious, the scene with Benteen and Cisco when she says, I heard that Admiral Layton has relieved you of command and you're on your way mm-hmm. back to Deep Space Nine. And he said that, well, I think I'm going to yes. stick around. Yeah, uh, you, like you're, you're 100% right. And uh, that was another you know? one of those things that felt a little flat or a little unexplored. Like like they had, they had written this line and then they shot it. And I wonder if somebody later on just said, wait, shouldn't, shouldn't that have had some payoff? Shouldn't there have been some reason to have this here? Yeah. Come on down to Joseph Sisko's Creole Kitchen, where the only thing pushed harder than the bread pudding is mandatory blood tests. We'll get back to Homefront and Paradise Lost in a moment, but first, a word from ExpressVPN, giving you back your internet privacy. Uh, You know, Norm and our listeners who were then earshot, I've been talking about how much I enjoy using ExpressVPN, uh, not only because it keeps me safe when I am surfing the internet, and I realize that I pretty much do everything online, everything from you know, paying bills to checking bank records, uh, utilities, uh, and that is just on top of my private communication as well. So having a service that keeps my information private is very important to me. And I also realize that as I drive around, go from place to place, um, I also connect to a lot of public Wi-Fi. Um, even my cable provider uh, provides public Wi-Fi hotspots. And those, even though I'm logged into it, I still appreciate that extra layer of privacy on top of that. Now, the other thing that is really important to me about ExpressVPN is that it is so easy to use. Um, Literally downloading an app onto my computer, my phone, and my tablet, and that's it. I can see clear as day when it's connected or not connected. It's that simple. And it hasn't affected my speeds at all. I really enjoy actually running a speed test before I connect and then after I connect just to see how it's performing. So far, performing excellent. So protecting yourself with ExpressVPN can actually cost you a lot less than you think, less than $7 a month. 
And it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So no matter where I'm headed, where I'm working, ExpressVPN protects my connections and at speeds that impress me every time. And now, John, with a lot of people shopping online, it's more important than ever to protect your internet security. So protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. So, Norman, one way that I like to approach the notes that I take for Mission Log is, you know, we're looking at current events. Obviously, we're looking at it through the lens of whether an episode holds up. But it's also important to look at an episode in the context of when it came out. And um, honestly, I'm having a bit of a hard time with that with this episode. And, and I'll tell you why, you know, reading the background information where you've got Renee and Ira and Ron Moore just talking about, well, we wanted to do this story uh, where we, we looked at issues of fear and paranoia and we wanted to get the changelings to earth and see what we could do there. Makes for an interesting story. But this came out January of 1996. So more than four years before 9-11. And that's one of those touchstones when the world changed, when when people started to look at security very differently from, you know, we talk about the pre-9-11 world and the post-9-11 world. And as much as we like to keep Mission Log an evergreen show and we, we don't like to put a, a date on it, this is one of those times where we kind of have to put a date on it. We are right now going through a planet-wide health concern, a, a planet-wide health crisis, if, if you want to call it that, a pandemic, because that is specifically what it has been called. We were around 9-11, and we are now asking ourselves challenging questions about how much freedom do we give up, or do we morph, or do we change, or do we readapt to in order to show that we are good citizens, and in order to show that we care about others. And the other thing that was so interesting to me, trying to put this into historical context versus our current situation, is that it's hard for us to conceive of our current world where the murder of 27 people would be a shock. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that is shocking and heartbreaking to me. I, I do realize that this is something that Star Trek gets to do, that they get to say, well, we're in this idyllic, egalitarian future where we've eliminated some of our basic needs and some of the things that tear us apart as a species, and we've been able to figure out how to get along with other species. So this type of thing would be rare, and we get to hold that up as an ideal. I think that's great. I don't think, not only is it great, it's important that we do that. However, Watching this episode now, that was that was at the same time shocking and and kind of charming to me that 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 could exist in this episode. Oh, twenty seven people got murdered. Well, yeah, and they're government officials, and that that's horrible as well. But I think, well, we live in a world where people get murdered all the time, and unfortunately, mass murders 
are less and less rare. You know, that's something that dominates a news cycle as well. So that, uh, th- this this episode either came at a horrible time or at the perfect time uh, because it just happens that we're we're in it. We're we're in it mm-hmm. again. Not exactly under the same circumstances. No, I don't mean that at all. But but there are themes here uh, that feel way closer to home than I think they would have a couple of years ago. And certainly, we would have been discussing this in a very different way when this came out in '96. Yeah, you know, I I agree with with all of the points that you've made here, especially when you're trying to wrap your brain around some of these loftier ideals with this world that existed post and pre or post 9-11. Yeah. Uh, and especially the, the era that they live in with the security of Federation protection where something like this hasn't happened, this 27, you know, the, the bombing of 27 people and their deaths that hasn't happened or something that that effect hasn't happened in the previous 100 yeah. years. You know, that's something that, that speaks to the very heart of where, you know, Gene Roddenberry's vision of humanity was supposed to go. And something like this is so catastrophic. 27 people, remember, 27, yeah. you know, not, not entire, you know, populations of people that are, you know, that are being bombed out of existence, you know, through terrorism mm-hmm. and, and acts of, of violence or shootings. Yeah. When you hear that, it really does clarify that humanity has become better, has gone to a better place. And this act of violence has regressed the Federation to the point where they need to act. And you're right. It's a weird kind of uh, place where they told this story because the world wasn't as aggressive as it is now but at the same time, though, I didn't feel that in this episode, they were kind of really pushing the boundaries of, of what I think you were supposed to feel from mm. that moment. You know, maybe it would have been a little bit more impactful if there were people of prominence in that mm. explosion, mm-hmm. like an ambassador that somebody knew, a character yeah. that we knew, right? Somebody that would have, not to say that those lives weren't meaningful, it's just that Sometimes we disassociate ourselves from the violence because they are just statistical. You know, they don't mean anything to us from a personal standpoint as opposed to a, I can't believe that, you know, all of these people were killed in this bombing. They didn't mean anything to me. Obviously, they mean something to somebody else. But maybe it would have given Admiral Layton more credence to have done what he did if, in fact, say, maybe the vice president of Starfleet or of the Federation was at that right, conference right. or one of their, one of their allies, like someone prominent in the right. Romulan government, or maybe that Tholian observer that was there. Remember they made like a very specific point to say observer, and one right. Tholian yes. observer. Yeah. Maybe that person would have been like the, the, he was the olive branch or it was the <laughs> right. olive branch to the Federation. Anyway, yeah. to my, my point being is that I, I, I understand what you're saying and it, it somehow this episode for what it's trying to deliver doesn't really quite reach the boiling point of where I think it needs to be. Yeah, uh, I, I agree 100%. And, and, and that might be, I mean, obviously we'll, we'll continue to expound upon that. It might be because of the time that it was made. 
It might be because of, you know, uh, budgetary or script limitations. But yeah, I don't know that we necessarily feel it. It's almost like an academic exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, one one thing I wanted to to talk about is how they are handling, I guess, the hierarchy of the Federation in this episode. Hmm. Because historically, we have all talked about the bad Merles, or <laughs> right. even yeah. all the way back to the original series, uh, some of uh, the, the, the greater thorns in Kirk's side were the ambassadors or the commodores, anyone who was higher ranking than a captain, because obviously the captains were the greatest, you know? <laughs> and, oh, and, and you, you don't mean the commodores. You don't mean like Lionel Richie. No, you mean, no. Those... You just mean commodores in general in Star Trek. Exactly, yes, just yeah. want to make that very clear. Like, yeah, like, we all like the commodores. Right, say, yeah. for example, Commodore Matthew Decker. He was having a very bad day. Not the greatest day, yeah. But in this case... The admirals in this era, in the 24th century Star Trek, are never painted in the greatest light. I don't know why, but it seems that within Starfleet, they have to create their own nemesis or enemy. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it is Starfleet itself. It is the bureaucracy of Starfleet itself that becomes the enemy. And I think that it's a very interesting concept that they created this chain of command, not the episode chain of command. but the chain of command that must be followed without question, regardless of how you perceive the morality behind those orders. And it's, it's kind of um, almost bad parenting in a way where it's do as I say, not as you choose, Mm. you know, it's like what I say you must follow because I said so without question. And it's in questioning that, that I think as the audience, we see, wow, what has happened to Starfleet and why? And how did we get here? I thought we were supposed to be better than this. But but here's the thing, you know, you have built up, uh, and I mean you personally, I mean DS9, uh, you, you've built up this idea of Starfleet and the Federation being under threat. We've established the Dominion. We've established how fearsome the Jem'Hadar is and how sneaky and powerful the founders are. So will that shake things up? Of course it will. And you introduce a guy like Leighton, what I actually like about this episode is that he's wrong about everything that he's doing. He is not wrong about his intention. His concern is that we're not prepared for things to get worse than they are right now. Mm-hmm. That is a legitimate concern for him to have. That's a legitimate concern for any country, any entity that is at peace. Well, we might be at peace now. But we can't account for every single outside threat. There may be more coming. And they have good reason to believe that there's more coming. Obviously, now you've got changelings on Earth who are doing what they can to wreak havoc. It's a very interesting balance to keep to say that, yes, this is who we are. These are our ideals. We have peace. We will continue to work for peace. And then somebody over here waving his hand saying, but – but what about the threats? Then in this case, that person goes off the deep end and, well, tries to stage a coup d'etat, which mm-hmm. is completely wrong. But I asked myself, was that person being heard at all? You know, uh, was his hand waving about those threats being ignored to the extent that, that it would have made the situation more dangerous? 
Well, you know, this is where I have a little bit of a conflict, actually a lot of bit of a conflict with how Admiral Layton was crafted as a character, because in one sense, he goes to all of these lengths to say that the chain of command must be honored and that the reason why we do and follow the chain of command is to make sure that all of the operations to protect Earth and Starfleet and the Federation run smoothly. If that's the case, then, then he, as the link in the chain of command, must comply with the top of that chain, which is the president. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, that solidifies his argument. But because he is staging this coup, because he has put all of his resources in place to usurp the president's power through martial law, not only has he put his own people at risk, but he is undermining the very pretense of the chain of command, which is to follow orders. Yeah. So is he doing so because he feels that it is the right thing to do, or is he doing so because of something else that I want to bring up? And I think this is probably a very sensitive topic, but I do think that it has to be said that the president isn't human. Mm -hmm. So would he have done the same thing? Would he have taken the same course of action if he was working with a human president? Because he said he believed that Gerasenio did not have the interests of Earth at the forefront. Right. Is Admiral Layton being speciesist huh. in a way I, it could very well be yeah i i don't think that's out of the question we actually we saw very few aliens on this version of earth other than him you know sure you got a bully on a screen once but <laughs> it was about it yeah you know i i think that's not out of the question i i want to go back to kind of what, what i feel is also uh part of the heart of this episode, which is trying to figure out what we do and how we react when we're presented with a crisis and what is overreaction versus what is appropriate precaution. And can you get too complacent, assuming that everything is okay, so that you're not really prepared for worst case? And they make this personal. They make this very personal with Joseph Sisko. I think he's just wonderful. I think he's great. Mm -hmm. And he's very stuck in his ways. And I, I get the feeling of indignity at people telling him what to do. Maybe on the medical level, it's harder for me to understand. Uh, maybe he's just in denial. But honestly, look, medical procedures in the 24th century are so quick and painless <laughs> that it really just seems like this is something he could do. Now, about that feeling, though, of being accused of a crime of basically being told you have to prove your innocence, that fundamentally goes against that sense of freedom and autonomy and, and the individuality that he has. And what I, what I like here is this challenge when he presents it to Benjamin about why he doesn't want to take the blood test. And Ben says, well, you're probably right, but this isn't about you. And, and in that moment, Benjamin is right. It's not about you specifically. It's about the protection of everybody. It was one of those needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few or the one moments that is important mm. to let it sink in. Oh, I, I, I think so. Well, I... No, I mean, to, if it's something as simple as you have a room full of people, you don't know who's who, you don't know where that threat is, and you can do a test to find out then it seems like you're doing the right thing. I, I have to side with, with Benjamin at least on the presumption that it isn't about targeting him. It's about 
protecting other people. But, 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 I will follow that up by saying Joseph says you can't go around telling people to prove that they are who they say they are. That's no way to live. And in that moment, Joseph is right. <laughs> he is absolutely right. I, I wish that this these two episodes focused on this more because I found this probably the most compelling part of these two episodes. And I think that, one, it's very impactful because you're dealing with, mm-hmm. let's, let's be honest, we're dealing with, with black yeah. characters, African-American yeah. characters. And, and maybe it would have lost some of its impact if you were dealing with non-African-American characters. I don't know, Asian characters, you know, Caucasian characters. But the reason why I was, I was uh, moaning my, my disagreement earlier on is because I agree with what, with what Joseph was saying. It's like, you know what? No one yeah. asked me. You know, it's like you, you made a Starfleet policy. Hey, buddy, I'm not Starfleet. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. You made a policy that speaks to you, not speaks to me. And you know what? No one asked me. Maybe if you did, I probably would have complied. Mm. But you just made a sweeping assertion that anyone who uh, anyone that we deem necessary to fall, uh, you know, and to toe the line of Starfleet policy will do so. And I think that this was a really important point that Joseph was making. It's like, you know what? That's great for you. But that has nothing to do with me. You and your government, of which I am not a part, are impacting my freedoms because you say you can. Yeah. And he's like, he didn't say that he was against it. He was saying that nobody asked my permission first. And I think that is a huge sign of disrespect to the individual because all of a sudden, everyone's got to take a blood test. Why? Because we say so. How's that fair? No one's informed the public, and maybe if someone informed the public, it'd be okay. And, you know, honestly, his follow-up to that, uh, describing, look, the the changelings could have figured out a way to get around this. As soon as as there's a test, somebody more clever is going to come up with a way around it. Yeah, I I don't disagree. This is one of those tough things. I don't disagree with the idea that people are concerned about what needs to happen, that they are concerned about the safety and security of others. I don't disagree that that infringed on his inherent rights as an individual, you know? Yeah, you know, the thing is that we don't really know kind of like what the government structure is for the Federation, what their freedoms are or aren't. Of course, But in the the analogy that that we believe that it's supposed to be um, a model of our freedoms, it's basically saying that because martial law was declared, you must toe the line regardless of how you feel or whether or not you voted for it, or and and your civil liberties and independence are now subject to the government. Yeah, and that's a very terrifying notion because the people never had a voice. Yeah, very true. But the other thing that kind of struck me funny, and and maybe this is just a, a convention in the writing or something that just didn't really sit well with me. There's kind of a forced issue with with Cisco's paranoia that his father's a changeling. Mm. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you without a shadow of a doubt that if this were real and, you know, um, maybe you could speak of this too with Dr. Champion in, <laughs> in our, in our example, I'll give him a ring. Yeah. I don't think that any changeling would ever be able to, to take the place or, or simulate somebody that I care for so much to the point where I would doubt them. Yeah. Sure, they can take on their physical traits. 
I get that. But there is no way that they would be able to replicate or simulate or try and, and fool me into thinking that the person in front of me isn't the person that I have loved for my entire life in a way that in a bond that cannot be understood. Right. Yeah, I do not disagree with you there. I mean, if you wanted to try to stretch it, you could say, okay, well, Benjamin is a head of security at this moment. He is leading this investigation at the moment. A changeling would want to be in a position to talk to him. But to Joseph's point, what what is a changeling going to do? Come pretend to be a cook, <laughs> you know? Uh, look, we can solve this pretty easily. Whip up a batch of gumbo, and if it's terrible, I'll know that it's not you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Much like Law and Order, Deep Space Nine are 24th century stories ripped from 20th century headlines. So we've been discussing this very important two-part episode for Deep Space Nine in Homefront and Paradise Lost, and there are a lot of really important messages, morals and meanings that have to be discussed. So, John, I'd love for you to talk about some of the things that just struck you more profoundly in these two episodes, because I think both you and I are in the same boat that while these two episodes weren't necessarily the tightest narratives that we've seen so far, (laughs) there are some very, very poignant messages that still resonate, I think, in today's society, especially in today's times, but I think that are even evergreen, as you spoke before. So how did how did these two episodes yeah. fulfill those points for you? Yeah, I, I mean, well, first of all, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head by saying that maybe from a production point of view, they're not they're not fully formed. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because you could feel that a bit. We came from a very strong two-parter with The Way of the Warrior, just a lot happening in that. And it feels like with this, they were aiming for something epic and they didn't get there. And that's too bad. In general, I like episodes that take us back to Earth from time to time. I think it's good to just sort of check in there. It it regrounds us, as it were, as viewers of the show and just kind of understanding things in context. I think that's cool. And we got some nice details, nice character details out of this. I love everything between Joseph and Benjamin and Jake. And I just I love Brock Peters and he's cast perfectly in this. I also like the themes, not because I like them, but because I think they're important to discuss. You have a story about fear and paranoia. Reminds me of uh, like the Twilight Zone, the monsters are due on Maple Street, where it's really about ramping up that fear and paranoia. Who's, Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And are we just eating away at ourselves to the point where that question almost becomes irrelevant? It's what we're doing to ourselves. This is a Badmiral story in the end, just just going by the plot. And like I said, it doesn't really have that epic scope that they intended. But they played with the themes of fear and paranoia versus sticking to ideals and freedom. If I were to nitpick, you know, there's a couple of things. It's stretched out for a two-parter. And you can really tell that they were stretching the budget. It's a planet-wide emergency, yet all we see is an office in San Francisco, an <laughs> office in Paris, 
<laughs> and two Sorry. two Starfleet guards yeah. on a quiet street in yeah. New Orleans. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a pretty small task for us of people working on this huge problem. Even the characters that we care about, you know, Ben and Layton and Odo and the president. It's just like it's enough people to get from one room there to another. There are a another. lot of asks. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this would have made a great movie, hmm. honestly. Um, so – Production-wise, there are a lot of problems. I, I honestly, I don't love this episode. I, it, it would be hard for me to say that it holds up. I think what does hold up is you've got a great performance from Brock Peters. You've got a good performance from Avery here. You've got much more interesting performances by, uh, well, people like Robert Foxworth. And I would say even Odo has some great moments, Renee. But there are uneven tones throughout this. So it's hard for me to say that this holds up. But but the conversation this opens, it was important then. It would have been important, again, in that post-9-11 world. It's important now again because these are issues that we keep bumping up against in many ways. And we've only focused on a couple here. We could go deeply into political territory on this as well. We could go deeply into other ways that personal liberties you may feel are being uh, uh, curbed or questioned. There are many, many ways to analyze this episode. But I think overall, asking us to challenge ourselves about how we look at authority how we look at the implementation of authority. They, these are, for better or worse, evergreen topics. Um, before we, we dive deeper into those morals, meaning messages, tell me, tell me your feeling on the episode itself, and then I, I think we can really drive it home after that. Well, I've said this before, and I think that I've actually done enough episodes where listeners can go back and hear my consistency of this one message, I felt that focusing on Worf and the way of the warrior as the season four opener completely diminished the momentum that the adversary left us with in season three. Yes. Yeah. And I felt that not capitalizing on that momentum with a story like this really hurts this story and where it's placed in the season. Because this would have been the perfect extension, a second and third act from the adversary where you're really building upon that dominion threat, the paranoia and fear of how the dominion and the changeling and the founders are infiltrating Starfleet and, and the Federation. Because that's what you established in the season three finale. You didn't establish the fact that the Klingons are... <laughs> you know they're they're massing for this this aggressive move against the the gamma quadrant. So when they when this episode dropped or these two episodes dropped, it just doesn't feel like it went anywhere. They never really committed to it entirely. Yeah, there is a great kernel of a story there, but it doesn't really embrace what it should embrace, and it never really takes a risk of trying to tell the story of that fear, of that paranoia, of the consequences and, and the stakes that are, that are being laid out for the Federation against the Dominion. And I think it's just because there are just too many 
One of my favorite, I'm, I'm going to digress here. One of my favorite movies of all time is Amadeus. Oh, yes. And, and yes. what the emperor says uh, to, to Mozart after he sees his very first opera, he says, there are just too, too many, many notes. notes. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Right? And when I'm watching these two episodes, there are just too many notes. Yeah. There are too many threads to pull, and you can only... The royal ear can only be demanded to hear so many notes. <laughs> Correct. Correct. And I think that's the way it is with these two episodes. Like, there's the Red Squad thing that's interesting. There's the paranoia that, that Benjamin has about his father that's interesting. There are his father's, the, his father's independence. There's, why is Jake there? And what's he doing aside from peeling potatoes and shucking crawfish? Mm-hmm. You know, there's Leighton's thing. There's Benteen's thing. I mean, there's so much stuff going on. And you're like... Where am I supposed to focus my attention and why? And why do I care? Yeah, right. And that's, that's my biggest issue with these two episodes is that you have arguably over 90 minutes of content, but you really can boil it down to two moments that are really important. And that's when, that's when Joseph basically just says, you know what? You can't do this to me. And then the very end where Benjamin says, you're fighting the wrong war, mm-hmm. the war of principles. And if you can build on those two moments, that would have been great, but they didn't. Yeah. And that's where the tragedy of this episode really suffers. And you know what's interesting? I I don't think there's a Deep Space Nine producer who would disagree with you on that. They, you know, going by Terry's book and, and by later interviews, it seems like they kind of feel the same way. They love the idea. But for every reason that you just described, you know, they, they're kind of backed into this corner. Oh, no, you have to uh, change things. So you're going to start with Worf. And now we're going to go off on this story. And now this is going to be planted kind of mid-season. It, it didn't come together the way it could have or should have. But let's talk about those uh, those messages, morals, and meanings. You know, uh, they they are playing with these ideas of fear and paranoia. And there's, you know, at least several good lines out of these episodes. Odo says, fear is a powerful and dangerous thing. And if you don't act, if you don't show them they're not alone, then surely fear will take over. That's what he says to the president about, you know, reassuring people uh, by showing that they are together on this. And John, let's let's overlay that on what's yep. happening today. Yep. That in and of itself, that point is very yeah. prevalent. I if you're paying time. attention to the news, you cannot help but feel that 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 the the importance of that line. Yeah. I I, I don't have to tell you to go read the news, you can do it. And look, you know, spreading fear and mistrust is just as dangerous as an actual military invasion. Maybe more so. You know, that, that's, uh, that I think you quoted it. In the end, it's your fear that will destroy you. Fear is not only a good way to control people, it's a good way to create a vacuum just ready for somebody else to exploit. And they show that quite clearly in this episode, that, that the, the founders have figured that out quite easily. They're ready to go. And by the same token, you know, authority is no good if it isn't based on fact and on trust, and has some sort of a moral center. That's part of the, you know, part of the big problem with Leighton is that he is at one extreme compared to the president who is at another extreme 
where um, he simply sees the opportunity to exert, to grab and then exert authority, but it isn't based on anything to mediate or moderate that. I never felt that Layton's issue with the president was earned. It didn't come by honestly, at least enough in the exposition of the episode. It's all of a sudden, he's just not a strong enough president and he's not human. So I need to take action because I feel like I'm strong enough and I have the resources and I'm the military and I'm human. So therefore I can act. Right. I think that's a very dangerous precedent as a message to, I guess, to put out into the public as this is what Starfleet is now becoming. Not every single Starfleet president or figure of authority is going to be human. Isn't that the point of the Federation? (laughs) Yeah. Right? You know? And then all of a sudden, I mean, I I just, I know that I'm focusing a little hard on that, that particular line of dialogue, but that's really important. You know, all of a sudden you have this, again, this, this kind of speciesist xenophobic philosophy that if you're not human, you don't have Earth's best Mm -hmm. interests at heart. And I found that incredibly disheartening to hear from a writing standpoint. Because, again, this is Star Trek. This is the Federation. We're supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to believe that the Federation is this this alliance of different species trying to, you know, to create a better future with humanity, hopefully, arguably, as a a pillar of that of that dynamic. Uh, and I just, I just like, wow. Um, it went there. I don't know. That just, that just didn't work for me. I'm sorry, people out there. I know that there's, you know, what's funny. It just reminds me of this. Uh, one of the messages Uh that we had, John, uh, I think it was on Facebook where one of the listeners said, you know, I'm surprised that there hasn't been any really dissension about any of the episodes that we've seen so far. How long are you going to be able to mm. sustain this positivity? <laughs> well, now you know. <laughs> that's it. Ten. <laughs> Ten. That's the magic number. Now you know. There we go. Yeah. 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 This this is it. This is the episode that kind of yeah. that was our, our straw, you know, that, yeah. that broke the camel's back. But if I may sum up and indulge some of the listeners who seem to enjoy my William Shatner impersonation for whatever reason. But the message yeah. is there. The message is there. I know that I don't look it, but I'm a, I'm a pretty big heavy metal fan. Right on. No, I did not know I didn't that. know if you knew that, John. That's very cool. All right. Yeah, I'm a pretty, yeah. I'm a pretty big heavy metal fan. And uh, heavy metal lyrics have some pretty poignant messages. And in this one particular song from Metallica, it's called Eye of the Beholders from their Black Album. I'm not going to sing it in the heavy metal tones because uh-huh. I can't do that. But what I can do is I can perform it in the prose style of one Mr. Oh, so it's William very show appropriate. Maestro, please. Doesn't matter what you see or into it what you read. You can do it your own way if it's done just how I say. Independence, limited, freedom of choice is made for you, my friend. Freedom of speech is the words that they will bend. Freedom with their exception. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Mission Log is part of the Roddenberry Podcast Network. You can visit us at podcast.roddenberry.com and enjoy our entire family of podcast entertainment, including Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Crossfire.
An ancestor of Spock's once said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. His descendant added, you never had to deal with shapeshifters. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.